Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Please join me in welcoming Phyllis Blackley. They say that women are like tea bags. You don't know their strength until they get into hot water. We need to talk about the threat of the women's liberation movement. So let me be clear. I am not against women working outside the home. That's their choice. What I am against is a small, elitist group putting down homemakers. They want to create a sex-neutral society, which will mean that women are going to find themselves with two full-time jobs. So you need to tell your senators you want them to vote no on this Equal Rights Amendment so we can have a country that we are proud to leave our daughters. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Still Watching Mrs. America. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. If you were just joining us for the first time on a Still Watching podcast, what Richard and I like to do is pick a television show that we are currently watching closely, obsessing over, and sort of discuss it in minute detail on a week-by-week basis. We have opted to overlap right now our coverage of the HBO series Westworld with the FX on Hulu series, Mrs. America, just because we were so excited uh, about Mrs. America and we couldn't wait. Uh, we didn't want it to pass us by. So here we are to talk about this great new show. Richard, what what has piqued your interest the most about this series, Mrs. America? Well, I mean, I think the cast primarily is really exciting. Um, you know, we're getting Kate Blanchett uh, playing Phyllis uh, Schlafly, um, uh, I believe this is Blanchett's first real foray on television, at, at least 
you know, her, her kind of movie star era of her career. Um, so that's kind of, you know, many other uh, great actors have fall- have done that before her. And so she's the kind of finally taken the cue. So that's interesting. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it's, ex- it's easy to get excited about her. It's less ex- easy for me to get excited about a show about Phyllis Schlafly, who, um, I mean, I'll make no bones about it to my mind was sort of a monster. Um, but, uh, you know, I think from what we've seen, these three episodes that we've seen so far, um, the portrayal of, uh, of Schlafly, who is certainly an influential person, um, is, um, even handed, let's say. Um, and then, you know, every, all the other cast members as well are very exciting. We're really, we're really excited for this, uh, series. So we are covering on this episode of Still Watching, we are covering the first three episodes, which dropped all at once, um, this Wednesday. They are titled Phyllis, Gloria, and Shirley. Uh, and as you can tell by the episode titles, each episode is somewhat centered on, uh, a different participant of the women's movement. So, we are going to be talking about those three episodes together. That's a lot to cover in one podcast episode. We also have three great interviews on this podcast that we're really excited about. We have the amazing Kate Blanchett. We have the amazing Uzo Duba. And we have the amazing Dobby Waller who created the show. Um, so we've got three interviews. So that's also a lot to get through in one, one podcast. So Richard and I are going to keep our discussion of the show itself a little brief this week, uh, just to make room for all those great interviews we have that we're so uh so thrilled to bring to you and uh, we promise that we will go a little bit more in depth in the upcoming weeks but this is just going to serve as sort of a broad introduction to the series our our you know first takes try to contextualize the whole subject matter a bit for you all uh and then let the 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 women of the series speak for themselves when it comes to what these first three episodes have to give to you so uh, Richard, if people have any thoughts or feelings, or if you and I, heaven forbid, get anything wrong about the second wave feminist movement, which I am very likely to do, uh, where can they reach us? Where can, where can our listeners give us feedback? Um, Joe wrote this, <laughs> just on Twitter. <laughs> no, um, uh, they can reach us at stillwatching at, uh, at gmail.com. Um, we, I think for this show in particular, you know, um, on our Westworld series, we get a lot of fan theories, which is fun, but I think on this show, it's going to be more about, like you said, historical accuracy. Um, it's going to be about this discourse. I mean, I just called the subject of the show, one of the subjects of the show, a monster. Maybe you disagree. Um, I don't know. So I, I think that like, hopefully we can have a lively exchange, um, in, you know, podcast to listener form of the over email or, you know, obviously we'll address, um, things on the show and, um, yeah, I hope people engage because this is a show all about engagement. Uh, yeah. So please do email us still watching pod at gmail.com. Um, and I full disclosure, Richard, before we started this series, I hope it's okay for me to share this. Richard was like, should we, are we sure anyone wants to listen to me talk about this show, uh, created by a woman starring a bunch of great women about the feminist movement? Um, I do want to hear Richard talk about the show. I, I love talking to Richard about all manner of television. So, um, but is our hope also that we might have some of our other, uh, Vanity Fair colleagues on future episodes as well. So, but I'm really excited to talk to Richard about the show, which I was interested from like in from a historical perspective, but then also found myself just getting really emotionally invested uh, in everything that this show is covering. Um, one thing we should say before we get started uh, into we're going to dive into the cast of characters that we have here. But um, I want to mention just to get us all on the same page that um, Davi Weller, who, cr- who created the series uh, and who 
gave gave us a great interview for this episode. Uh, she has a, a long history uh, in television that goes through Desperate Housewives, Mad Men, Halt and Catch Fire, and here we are. And I, I, you know, there's a great interview with her and our colleague Joy Press up on VanityFair.com. Um, knowing that that's where Davi came from really helped me contextualize what I was watching, uh, if that makes sense. And I, I love that this is the project that she decided to sink her teeth into. Um, so let us get started. This series covers basically a decade uh, in the history of the women's movement from 1971 to 1981. And uh, for context, I was born in 1981. So uh, this, it was really interesting to me to see the the political sort of stew that was cooking right before I was born. It just really helped me understand what I was born into, if that makes any sense, mm-hmm. um, in a way that I hadn't before. But um let us start with the people. Basically, this is a fight between two factions over the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, and the effort to get it ratified in enough states so that it could be added to the Constitution. And uh, so we've got two sides of this argument, right? We've got the feminists and whatever we want to call Phyllis Schlafly's side of the argument. Um, so let's start with the feminists. And what I love about this show is that these feminists are shown absolutely warts and all, uh, and clashing with each other, which is exactly as it should be in any movement. There's always some kind of, um, in interior, uh, disagreement and discussion. Uh, but let's start with possibly the most famous, even more famous than Phyllis Schlafly, who is, you know, ostensibly sort of the, the linchpin of the series. The most famous, I think, feminist figure to come out of this time is Gloria Steinem, played by the great Rose Byrne. Uh, Gloria Steinem founded Ms. Magazine, as we, you know, see in her centric episode. Um, Richard, what do you, what do you make of both Gloria Steinem as a figure that you're aware of in the culture and uh, how she's depicted here in these first three episodes. I, I think that, I think that they, they handle her in an interesting way because um, she's not depicted as an outright hero, hero, hero. I think you see that in especially the third episode, which focuses on Shirley Chisholm um, where, you know, I, I, I think, you know, she was complicated. She understood certain or believed she understood certain kind of compromises that had to be made. But she obviously was a force uh, for positive change in, in this country and in the world. Um, uh, and one that, you know, was embraced in by the kind of zeitgeist, by popular culture. Many people, you know, say it's because of her looks. I mean, that is a topic that is addressed in the show. And, um, you know, and I, I think she she's a complicated public figure. Um, and the show thus far has done a good job of showing, you know, those various facets of that complexity um i think burn is great you know i, I this this show benefits um considerably uh for for me and other you know p- perhaps other people who are at the sundance film festival this year because there was another um project there that was about Gloria Steinem called the glorias directed by julie Taymor, featuring um Alicia Vikander and Julian Moore as Steinem at two different ages. Um, and it is, um, by my mind, a kind of a mess of a movie. So it's nice to see, uh, someone else get this right and this, this, this figure right. Um, because she's fascinating. I am a huge, I think we're both huge Rose Byrne fans. Yeah. And, um, the last time that, 
uh, she was on a, a show in like a long, meaningful manner was the TV show Damages, which is a, an old favorite of mine. Uh, so I'm thrilled to see her, you know, back, back on TV, uh, on a week in, week out basis. And she has, I think, the biggest challenge, uh, in one regard out of any of the performers here in that Gloria Steinem is the, mo- is the figure we're probably all of us, the general audience, most familiar with. Um, there's a lot of, you know, known women in, in this series, but Gloria Steinem is still someone we see on our TVs and stuff like that. So, um, you know, a peek behind the curtain at a future episode of Still Watching, we'll have a conversation with Rose Byrne, uh, all about that and about, uh, her incredible Gloria Steinem wig, uh, as well. Uh, okay. So then next we have, uh, Bella Abzug, uh, who, who had the fun nickname of Battling Bella. This is played by the great, uh, Margot Martindale, character actress Margot Martindale, uh, as a Bozak, uh, Bojack Horseman calls her. Uh, she was a U.S. representative for six years, uh, and a founder of the, of this, uh, movement. She, I have to say, Bella is maybe my favorite f- character in this entire series because I know so many women. I, I'm like equated with several staunch feminists who remind me so much of her. So it is like really, uh, exciting for me to see, uh, this kind of character portrayed on screen. Uh, what do you make of, of Bella and, and Marco's, uh, portrayal of her, Richard? Yeah, no, she, she's somewhat familiar to me as someone who grew up, um, uh, my dad was a college professor and I just knew a lot of, um, academic women in his, in his sphere who, um, had a sort of similar disposition about, but, you know, roughly a little bit younger than, than Abzug would, was that, you know, when I was a kid, but, um, yeah, very familiar. Um, and I also like with Steinem, I like that they show a complexity with her yeah. is that, you know, you see Shirley Chisholm kind of butting heads with her about, you know, and actually I think it is reflective of the way that our discourse about the current presidential campaign is happening. Like is Biden, you know, or I guess Sanders has dropped out now. So it's kind of a moot point, but you know, is Biden's brand of like palatable centrism, the more effective way to get something, something done versus just like being more radical. And and I think that that dialogue is something that has always um, been a part of, of, progressive the progressive movement and um so it, it's nice to see that kind of paid um thoughtful uh credo uh, in in this show and in the form of of uh of this character from you know played by one of my favorite actresses and that i mean that brings us to shirley chisholm who is uh you know on on my radar is the second most notable uh real life figure in this uh, cast played by the great uzo aduba as i said we will we will chat to in this episode of the podcast um Shirley was a, uh, in, in the House of Representatives for 14 years, and she's the first black candidate for a major party's nomination for president, the first woman to run for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination, uh, and the first woman to appear in a United States presidential debate. And, you know, we get a, a big taste of that in the third episode centered on Shirley. And, um, I, you know, she, she is someone that I think, um, was, you know, was such a groundbreaking historical figure just generally, but, um, especially when the, I, I was made more aware of her, um, during the Obama administration. It was like, I felt like, 
a lot of homage was paid to, you know, the road that she walked for to make the Obama administration happen in the first place. So and this idea, this question, exactly right what you're saying, Richard, of like electability, who's electable. And it's incredible that we're having the same conversation, the exact same conversations uh, decades after uh, Shirley Chisholm was here. But for me, uh, watching the first three episodes, I mean, I, I, I love the show. I'm really, I'm all in right off the bat. But the moment where Shirley Chisholm takes the stage, um, at the convention at the end of, of episode three, and you see the women in the audience who have both supported her and let her down in many ways feel emotional to see her up there. That's the moment watching the show that I was like, this show is going to be, just emotionally really impactful for me. Um, so how did, how did the Shirley of it all land for you, Richard? Yeah, I, I think it's the strongest episode, um, in, in, in certain ways. Well, I mean, partly because Aduba is so good. Um, it's so nice to see her doing something that isn't, um, or just new black, which she was great on, but like that character was such a big sort of idiosyncratic character, that, um, it's nice to see her playing someone who is, um, you know, feels a bit, frankly, realer. Um, and yeah, I think that, I think it just resonates. It's one of the, 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 the storyline is one that resonates really with today's, you know, climate. I mean, a lot of this does, but, um, you know, about these questions of intersectionality and, and, um, you know, uh, people, uh, who are, you know, the first blank to do blank often feeling like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm also want to do the thing. It's not just, this is not just a symbolic gesture, you know? And I think seeing Chisholm's f- uh, frustration with exactly that, um, is really powerful and, and, and a, a, a worthy reminder that, that the dialogues we're having and we, we constantly talk about, um, this current era being so, you know, heightened social justice and, and, you know, woke and all these things, which, you know, are now sort of wielded as, as criticisms by a large number of people in this country. Um, but th- this same kind of discussion was happening nearly 50 years ago, you know, um, and, and probably longer than that. So, um, I think the, the, the Shirley episode in particular is a, is a kind of bracing reminder of that fact. So the first two episodes, Phyllis and Gloria, are written by Davi Weller, directed by Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. Um, and then the third episode, this episode about Shirley Chisholm, uh, is written by Tanya Barfield and directed by Ama Asante to, you know, black women. And, um, so I, I think something that I talked to Davi about and Uzo about is this idea when we talk about feminism in general, and absolutely, when we talk about second wave feminism, this question of intersectionality, uh, which is not, which is a term we use now, but was not maybe a, a term, or I think definitely wasn't a term that was used then, um, is a big question. How do the women's movement embrace, uh, you know, women of color and gay women? And how did it let them down? And I think that that's a really, uh, important episode and, um, really, a really important one to have in this first chunk of episodes that we get all at once. Um, so why don't we not waste any time and, and go to our interview, uh, with Uzo Duba, who played, uh, Shirley Chisholm. start by asking you, you know, this, this uh, project has been in the works since, you know, before the last presidential election. Uh, it's been, a, it's been a long time in the works. And I'm wondering when it first 
came across your desk? Not last year, fall of the year previous, so 2018. And what did you make of the of the project? What was your first reaction? Well, I was excited for two reasons. One, I was excited because, A, I didn't think I would work with another group of, like, all-female cast that was really talented on something, like, substantive. Um, so that was, like, really exciting um, because I definitely, when we were finishing Orange, I was thinking this is something that's probably never going to happen again. It was just so really enjoy it. Seriously, I remember saying it, like, so dramatically, and then it was like, check your inbox. And I was like, oh, this could happen again. And then the second thing was, I just thought it was really cool that there were all these women, some of whom I had never heard of, for sure, um, that were getting their their time, their space to really hold space and for for their stories to be more widely known. Um, you know, I think, I can speak for myself, I think I thought, when I think of the second wave feminist movement, there are, you know, some iconic figures, singular figures, and who have, you know, grown up to be gods, and you think that there's only these one or two or three people who, you know, participated in the movement. And then you realize, oh, my gosh, there were so many people who were part of this. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I just thought it was awesome that they, that those women, like, we speak their names. I thought that was pretty dope. What were you aware of in terms of Shirley herself? And how much did you wind up uh, learning about her in the process of playing her? As a kid, I knew her just like as a name because my mom really loved her. <laughs> um, but I didn't know anything that she did. I was like, I like Shirley Chisholm, but I didn't actually know anything about her. I was just like, because, just because my mom does, you know? Like, I just like, you know? And then when I moved to New York, I had bought this book called An African-American Century, and it was uh, focused on 1900 to 1999, um, and all the pivotal, monumental African-Americans who had held some level of impact or effect on the country or the world, and um, there was a section on Shirley Chisholm, and that was the first time I ever learned about her, and I learned that she was the first black woman elected into Congress, and I learned she was the first woman uh, and black person to run for president and learned what she sort of stood for and the impact she made. And that was like my beginnings of a Shirley Chisholm knowledge. And then I really got a more in-depth knowledge through this project, reading her books and learning about her life and hearing her voice, you know, her own words, and then the documentary and learning about her platform and seeing how, you know, frankly, how far ahead of the curve she was on a lot of issues that we talk about. in even today's, you know, current election that I thought was, yeah, it's pretty amazing. How ahead. She was a woman just like so far ahead of her time in so many ways, not just in terms of being a figure and trailblazer, but even just policy-wise. Some of the things that she spoke, you know, she spoke on LGBT issues in the 70s. Right. You know, um, spoke on, spoke of Head Start. I was talking about universal health care then, the decriminalization of marijuana then, you know, just a lot of issues that we talk about now and or have enacted, you know. Um, just very, very powerful woman. 
Yeah, I was I was really amazed watching episode three in particular, um, hearing so many things come out of Shirley's mouth in terms of uh, the democratic process. They sound so similar to so many of the conversations we had uh-huh. around the last election and this election, the idea of the process itself being on. <laughs> uh, like unpenetrable. It's 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 amazing. It's incredible to watch, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And also really, you know, I think like I I th- I think I thought it was powerful, you know, obviously we shot this before this this primary and it was written before the last election. I just thought how interesting, you know, just that cliche expression, you know, history repeats itself, but how, how often that is actually true when you're watching and experiencing the show. Because to your point that what this woman is, what this woman is highlighting and spotlighting, you know, and then you flash forward some 50 years and it's like, oh, we're doing this all again <laughs> we're doing this thing. we're doing it like literally almost to the letter again yeah the the word electability i don't think is used in that episode but it's like hanging over it the same way we talk about it now uh with you know candidates of color and female, and female candidates and i'm wondering you know when when you're playing a real life figure like this how much uh in terms of your performance how much do you want to calibrate it to, you know, there's footage of Shirley Chisholm giving speeches. There's, you know, we have a lot of record of her. How much do you want to make sure, you know, your speech pattern or your demeanor lines up with her? And how much is it important for you to find sort of an internal truth around the character? The internal truth question was what I was drawn to. I was, I focused on this question that I had, um, you know, I kind of go into my process often with, asking a question and um and i was really interested in this question of how does she define herself versus how the world has defined her and how she how the world sees her to me it became about capturing that obvious power and strength and i don't i don't mean that in the sense of like you know her oration and you know, just exclusively policy. I mean that in the sense of a, there is, she's cut from a, this is a person who is cut from an obviously different cloth, who if in the late 60s, 70s, become politically activated as a woman, as a black woman in America, believes herself capable of, taking on the seat of Congress, is elected for it, and then now believes, despite any woman or black person before her never, never having tried, that she possesses the ability to hold the highest office in the land. And I was interested in getting to the center of who, of that voice. Right. Not the exterior I was interested in getting to the center of that person because it resonated with me. This is, you know, a lot of her speeches, when you read them, it's about possibility, you know, hope. These are large pillars in her, her speeches at universities and, um, that idea of things being the, the impossible being possible resonated with me and was something I could connect with, the idea of how someone might view you or what, what someone might think is possible for you versus what you think is possible for yourself. 
um, I was interested in that kernel of storytelling. Just watching this whole project at home is very emotional to me um, as a woman, like watching watching this movement and everything that came before my time. And speaking to various women who have appeared, they also found it extremely emotional. I'm wondering if you had a moment or a scene or a, you know, a confrontation that was particularly challenging or emotional for you to, to film or to work on. Yeah, you know, I think it was, there's a bedroom scene that I have with my husband, played by the wonderful, amazing, and my friend, Brandon Durden. (laughs) We're talking about staying in and being supported, and she's saying how, why am I the only one who believes that a black woman, you know, she's talking about running for office, Mm -hmm. is possible, that it's a possible thing. Um, why am I the only one? And that was, that's, I guess, what I'm, I was getting at in your last question. Yeah. Um, I, I found that to be something, I, I, I was, I didn't feel like I was speaking, I didn't feel like Shirley was speaking just for herself. I mean, let me say it that way. Yeah. And I know she wasn't. Um, I was very, it was very emotional to me because it made me think back to growing up. My mom, you know, my family's from Nigeria and, um, my mom would say, I never knew there was anything wrong with being black until I moved to America. She would say that. Yeah. I, didn't know, I didn't know there was anything wrong with it. And she's like, as I, and you would say, you know, we'd say like, what do you mean? She'd be like, because in Nigeria, every, everyone is black. So your smartest person is black. Your dumbest person is black. Your president is black. Your teacher is black. The janitor is black. The poorest person in the country is black. And the richest one is black. You know what I mean? So I never understood knew that knew there was anything wrong with being black until I came here and understood how people were seeing me. Or, you know, she'll tell stories, she would tell stories about come moving to America. And by the way, I wanna say this it, it was significant and made those scenes emotional because the time I'm referencing my mother saying these things and telling these stories are line up to when, you know, Shirley Chisholm is out in the world. Right. Um, you know, this idea where she's, she's saying, you know, I, there was a job she was applying to have been called in to teach at a very prestigious school, and she showed up, and the secretary thought she was there for the custodial hiring that was happening on the other side of the school and sent my mom there, you know. Um, just the way that my mother felt she was viewed the way I have felt myself viewed without any consideration of anything being maybe more for myself. And so I say that to say, it's like, I say all of that to say that that scene in particular, along with the scene, the book signing scene with uh, Bella and Betty and Gloria, um, really struck a nerve for me because I knew and was emotional to me because surely I was saying those words and she was saying them for herself, but she was saying it for someone. She was saying it. She wasn't the only one who felt that way. She was speaking for a larger group. And that larger group she was speaking for includes me. And it was, it was emotional because you know, it's just that feeling of, you know, because of you, I am. Um, 
even though I'm not in politics, but your existence, whether, whether you knew it or not, affected my life and, and the freedoms and experiences that I'm able to have. In, um, in episode three, uh, there's um, the sequence where we see uh, Phyllis Schlafly's movement sort of embrace uh, racist members, racist language, that sort of stuff as this, um, you know, sort of microcosm representation of the way in which the right wing has, you know, sheltered racists under their, under their party umbrella in order to have the numbers that they need to get what they want to do. Um, but how important right. is it also to show the way in which, um, the left and the women's movement let down um, its black members, including Shirley, who's a, who's a founder of of this wave of the women's movement. That is a piece um, that is, has has often been forgotten, and, and for, at least when we're you know really having the conversation, yeah, um, about feminism um, and just party at large, right? Um, it's a piece that. And it's an important piece that 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 need, needs to be remembered. Um, again, you know, not to sound like a broken record, but or we dare to continue to repeat it. Yeah, I thought it was, I I thought it was really strong, uh, and I was glad that that was included because um, it was important that the story one be holy. Hold everyone responsible who, who, you know, need to, needed to be held responsible. Right. That needed to be held responsible. Two, I think it was also because I think it really laid out um, the truth of the matter of that that it wasn't just the racism that and the the say the right side uh, argument and you know, protesting that caused for this whole movement to fall apart. There were, it wasn't, it wasn't set on a very solid foundation. Right. And, um, and to really kind of really put a little focus on the blind spot that lived within the Democratic Party, the women's liberation movement, that, you know, that it wasn't just the right that did it. We also bear some responsibility for having done it to ourselves and not, and not seeing well the full range of possibility and strength that exists and, and that existed with, within what is womanhood. You know, it wasn't a singular right. fight for a single group. Um, you know, I think that, I think it was very, I thought, I thought it loved it. I thought it was great. Even, you know, there's that scene with, um, Brianna, when she says um, she wants to do an article on tokenism, yeah, that really, really—I don't know—I don't remember what episode it was, but forgive me. But I remember reading that and being like, <laughs> like out loud, like wow, how great! Episode three was written by a black woman, directed by a black woman. What kind of difference does that make for you as a performer? Um, you know, to have those two creative um, forces also on, on your episode? I'll start here. Firstly, that Ama was the first, sorry, she was the second. She is the second black woman director I've ever worked with in my life. Wow. Um, 
and on on film. Excuse me. Let me not say I, I have it in the theater, but on film. But it's not like there are that many in the theater. Let me be clear. Like <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't want to make it sound like like, and I've done it five thousand times on the bit. No, it's still very scant the number. <laughs> but like, um, let me start with first saying that having them in the space, it's re- it was important in that, fir- firstly, it was important because they're not the only one. I think, I don't know if you've ever felt like the only person of whatever, whatever the thing is that makes you the only one. Yeah. But it doesn't feel great to sometimes be the only one. And it certainly doesn't feel great to be the only one, like going back to Brianna's um, scene, where she's talking about the tokenism, where you're meant to, you know, black women not being a monolith and having to speak for an entire race, right? Um, it, it doesn't feel good to be the only person and feel like you're representing an entire group of people when you are, when, when that's not how any other group might be made to, to bear a responsibility, right? So it's nice, it was nice having that exists on our set at large. And then to go deeper with it, we had people come on our set, you know, day in, day out, because our producers were uh, really, really super, like, intense about having that, which I thought was awesome. Um, But then on a deeper level, so rarely do you see black women in those particular chairs. And... And I'll go even a, a step further at the same time. Right. And them be women. It's not, oh, I can relate to you because I had that experience in this other format. They actually can relate to you because they've that exact same thing happened to them. And that becomes when you're having, you know, discussions leading up to the work, the doing of the work before we're filming, we're sitting, we're talking, and Amma, who's just so generous in that way, um, and and understands the balance that needs to be struck. Um, it makes you feel like your thoughts, your perspectives are in good hands, and that your perspective, at the very least, is being has been perhaps understood. You under you know that it's been wholly understood. Not that I don't think somebody else could not understand it, but I know for sure it's been understood. One thing that I was, uh, I, I maybe it's completely naive of me, Richard, but one thing I was shocked, uh, to hear Uzo Dupo say to me is that, uh, Alma Sante is only the second, uh, woman of color to ever direct her in film or television. And wow. <laughs> like when you think about Orange is the New Black, I'm yeah. like, I am, I'm astonished that that's, that that's, that's the case. Really? So yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty upsetting, but, um, I, you know, great. Uh, Alma Sante did a great job with this. Uh, she's a great director generally did a great job with this. And I think Bowden and Fleck did a great job with the first two episodes. I think mm-hmm. like, you know, the directorially, this feels like, um, Beautiful elevated television, prestige television. Yeah, I like the tone of the show. It, it's a little shaggy because it's the seventies and it's you know um, all that kind of thing. It, it has the, the picture has a nice grain to it, but it's it's also you know it's it's slick. I mean, the, the, these these women are getting you know the big prestige TV treatment as they should, and um, 
yeah, it's uh, it's it's really well done, and I think it's also interesting seeing FX on Hulu um, do one of these shows without the kind of Ryan Murphy imprimatur, you know? Right. Um, yeah. And and uh, I think they're doing very well with it. Um, all right, so let's run down the the other uh, major players on on this side of the debate. Uh, there's obviously more. We will get to them in future episodes, but let's just uh, get to the rest here, which is uh, Jill Ruckel's house, which is who's played by Elizabeth Banks. She's the head of the white. She was the head of the White House Office of Women's Programs, um, and and maybe most uh, you know intriguingly for this conversation uh was a republican it, and and so this idea that the women's movement had you know the way she's presented in the show is she's like their token republican this this idea that the movement is bipartisan um and which we should say before phyllis schlafly came on the scene you know the, the era was an hey i'm brian stelter host of inside the hive from vanity fair This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply incredibly popular, um, you know, position. It was a bipartisan, it had bipartisan support. And so the idea that Phyllis Schlafly made this sort of a divided topic is what we will be watching unfold over these uh, many episodes. But uh, the the figure of Jill being on, you know, a- among these other women, I think is, is really interesting, uh, you know, comparison. I will say the Jill episode, which is coming down the line, is one of my favorite episodes of the whole uh, season. So I'm really excited for us to get to that one. But uh, Elizabeth Banks rocking an incredibly um, – interesting wig as as uh as jill what are you what are you how are you feeling about this richard yeah i mean there's a lot of good hair work on the show yeah um <laughs> yes. you know and, and i like i like you know i haven't i don't think i've watched as far into the series as you have um i like that each i i like the structure of the show where there's one character is sort of highlighted but the other people don't disappear you know right. so it's, it's just kind of fun seeing um you know, Banks in there and being like, Oh, I wonder what she's doing on the show. And then knowing that she's going to have an episode later, you know, that Bella Abzug is going to have her own episode. Um, you know, I think, I think it's, it's promising. I, I wish that Nisi Nash's character, yeah, that Flo Kennedy, it doesn't appear to me that she's going to get a standalone, but, um, maybe it'll pop happen in some other form. But, um, yeah, I, I think that, uh, there's got to be a reason why all these big names signed on for this show. So I'm <laughs> excited to see why as the series goes on. 
Yeah, I think uh, Nisi Nash is fantastic as Flo Kennedy, and I think if there's one thing I wanted more of in this uh, series, it would be more of her and her character. Yeah. Um. So, so we've got Flo Kennedy, a great civil rights leader and and feminist, and then uh, rounding it out, uh, Tracy Ullman as Betty Friedan. Betty Friedan wrote the Feminist Mystique, 1963, and she is, you know, like the Feminist Mystique is like hard, uh, you know, even. Even I, a, a Gen X or whatever, has read, have read The Feminist Mystique. This is such an important uh, piece of work. Uh, she was a, an absolute celebrity, as was Gloria Steinem, as, as the show sort of outlines uh, for them. And uh, one one element of the Betty Friedan uh, conversation, which is highlighted a bit more in episode four, which is called uh, Betty, uh, is how she had a real journey to go through on the LGBT issue. And the idea of including lesbian in the women's movement, which she was staunchly opposed to for a time. And so that's just part of this inter interior conflict that was happening in the, in the women's movement, that question of intersectionality, the question of including um, lesbian women. And I don't think it was even a conversation on the table to include trans women, but that is also something that obviously the feminist movement has, has struggled with uh, still has uh, struggles around. So um, any thoughts on, on Betty Friedan and, and Tracy's performance there, Richard? Oh, it's just always nice to see what Ullman, who is such a chameleon, um, you know, is doing. And I think Friedan is such an interesting character because she likes Steinem, um, as the sort of emblems of, of my understanding of second wave feminism, um, have in, in, in our third or fourth wave or wherever we are, um, at this point, uh, been, you know, had a harsh light shine on them, you know? I, I yeah. think that, um, I think that some, what you find now in some ways is that, uh, you know, women who are like, let's say, older Gen X, younger boomers, you know, uh, kind of looked to still look to Friedan and and in particular, um, and, and by some younger people in the feminist movement now see those people as conservative, um, to some degree. Uh, so it's just an interesting, you know, like, um, how, how generationally these things evolve. Um, so yeah, I'm excited for, uh, more of, of Friedan because she's a fascinating figure as they all are. And then on the other side of the debate, obviously we have Phyllis Schlafly as, as the queen. And then like these other figures are just much, you know, some of them not even real life figures, but it's basically like the Phyllis Schlafly show over on the other side of the debate here. And that will, that in itself will become its own issue. But Kate Blanchett here doing a tour de force wolfy performance as Phyllis Schlafly. And as you, as you said, uh, right off the bat, Richard, this is, this is a character that could have been just a, you know, outright unsympathetic monster villain. And I'm not, I'm not going to go so far as to say this show has given me like sympathy for Phyllis Schlafly, but it wants to give you nuance for who she well, is. Well, understanding. I mean, she wasn't yeah. a sociopath, you know, right. um, and she, she, not that we shouldn't try to understand sociopaths, but you know what I mean? Like she was, she, she had a complexity to her life as well. And, um, I think the show, thus far has done a good job of acknowledging that. I think in particular the scene with John Slattery who plays her husband, where he basically forces her to have sex, um, which is something that she has said that there's no such thing as marital rape. And, and so I think it, it kind of addresses that from a, a, an angle that maybe people have not considered that she herself, you know, had found herself in situations like that. So I don't know. 
she's surrounded by this coterie of, of, uh, supporters. She's got, there's Sarah Paulson playing, uh, Alice McRae, who's a composite character, like a fictionalized character, but based loosely, um, on Phyllis Schlafly's real life neighbor. There's Melanie, the great Melanie Linsky as Rosemary Thompson, who was a, a real life sort of leader of the, uh, Eagle Forum, this, uh, conservative, uh, group that Phyllis Schlafly founded. Uh, Jean Triplehorn, um, playing Eleanor Schlafly, who is essentially like, I mean, she's, you know, this sort of, uh, put upon main aunt figure, uh, in, in the Schlafly household, but essentially serves the role of Phyllis's wife. Like if Phyllis becomes this like big political activist, you can't do all of that and like raise your kids. So essentially there's this other woman, not to mention, uh, you know, maids in the house doing the, the, the mothering and the wifing while Phyllis Schlafly has carved out this other opportunity for herself, which I think is really fascinating. Uh, and lastly, but definitely not least, Kaylee Carter as, as, uh, this young woman named Pamela, who's a, who's an interesting, uh, participant and we'll have more to do later. Yeah. Um, also we, sh- um, I, for my own, uh, so here's the issue with a, with a man being on this podcast. Um, I wanted to briefly mention that, um, we see it, there is a scene where Phyllis's oldest son, John, uh, asked one of, uh, Phyllis's friend, like, oh, is he back from his tour? I asked Sarah Paulson's character, is, is your son back mm-hmm. from, uh, I think the war essentially. And, um, he seems, excited or very curious about that and i think the interesting thing is that phyllis schlafly's eldest son john is a gay person and uh schlafly is not a very was not a very pro-gay person and uh i'm wondering if that is going to come into the show um as the, as the series goes on because it's an interesting dynamic um you know coming from very you know from within her own family uh it will it will come into play so um that is those are our cast of characters we've got you know as you mentioned John Slattery we've got like some some wives uh, some husbands and boyfriends that's come in and out and and some other figures we'll get to them more but that's like that's the main cast of characters uh I just want to make sure that everyone is sort of like oriented in in who we're talking about uh before we move on to sort of like some of the uh you know historical beasts that we're going to be hitting in the series uh let's take this opportunity to hear what Kate Blanchett has to say about the challenges of playing a character like Phyllis Schlafly. Hello, how are you? I'm, I'm okay. Verging between the hysterical and, um, <laughs> yeah, how are you? That sounds about right. Somewhere between hysteria and like oddly normal, you know, just goes back and forth. So I, I just wanted to start sort of at the beginning with you and ask, you know, what it was about this project or Phyllis Schlafly uh, specifically that, that got your attention in the first place. Well, I'm, I'm always interested in surprising and unusual stories, particularly about pockets of history that one thinks one knows quite a bit about as I did with second wave feminism. You know, I, I identified as a feminist when I was at high school, and whilst my mother was a feminist, she didn't identify with one, so it was kind of that language was certainly in my upbringing. And to to have suddenly be ambushed by a figure like Phyllis Schlafly, who has had such a profound influence on the notion of traditional womanhood as we understand it in our world today, but also in the the um the the rhetoric and the the formation of the Republican Party as it exists today, but yet not to have known anything about her, I was I felt really ambushed by 
by that. It was a perspective on the the women's movement that I didn't know anything about. So, and obviously, someone who had spent their entire life um, working so tirelessly and passionately against the notion of equality, I wanted to know what was so threatening about it. So that was my starting point. I, I, I started with a like an audience member, I think, with a whole raft of questions that I wanted to ask Phyllis Schlafly. But unfortunately, she died um, just after she endorsed Trump, which I also found <laughs> fascinating. Right. Like I thought, why was this 90-odd-year-old woman trucked out during Trump's campaign? And why was it that women voted that man in? And so there were so many contemporary questions that I wanted to ask, as well as questions about... Um, you know, um, where the, what was the legacy of, of second wave feminism and, and why did we seem to be having such similar conversations as women did back in the 70s? So there was, you know, there was, I, I came armed with a whole lot of questions, I guess. So when you have questions like that for your process, when you're playing a real life character like this, you can't ask her directly, where do you go for answers for those questions? I went straight to the source. The Eagle Forum is one of the most uh, deep-pocketed archives that you could ever encounter. I mean, you, you go and look uh, look up Shirley Chisholm or Bella Abzug and um, even Betty Friedan, and there's really not a great um, wellspring of, of interviews on radio and television and, and in written form that exist. But Phyllis's archives are enormous. So I went... I went to her archives and obviously went to her authorised biography. So that was, it was in her own words that I went to because she's such, Phyllis is such a, um, a, a polarizing figure. I mean, you know, to half the women in, in, in America, she's the Antichrist and to the other, and a traitor to her sex. And the other half, she's a, she's a Joan of Arc figure. And so somewhere between those two things, I thought that there's, uh, there, there lied the woman. And so I, I went to her own words actually. Because I was, I was wanting to, to delve into Phyllis's mindset in a non-judgmental way to find out what made her tick. And something I love about this, the first episode of the season is, um, the creation of this movement that she leads comes, seems to come out of the same frustrations or at least similar frustrations, uh, the same crucible almost that forms, you know, the staunch feminists of this series, these, these frustrations with being sidelined, having her ambitions frustrated, etc. And she's found a place where her voice can be heard. And that is, that is a fascinating parallel to me. Well, Darby talked about it a lot as being a David and Goliath story. Mm. And the, the, the hard thing for us to understand now, given that the the Equal Rights Amendment still has not been ratified, even though 38 states have now, you know, have now ratified, but you know, it's, it's it seems unlikely, even though what's happened recently in Virginia, it, that it's going to be picked up and and that the Constitution is going to be amended. But at the time that this was going on, that the women's movement was establishment, and Phyllis and those women that she identified and galvanized, the, the self-described um, traditional women, the, the homemakers who felt alienated and marginalized by the growing power and the groundswell of the women's liberation movement, 
that they they felt like they were outsiders fighting a whole lot of insiders from their perspective who had a lot of government money. You know, they were all heading towards this women's conference in Houston in 77, which is Gloria Steinem said is one of the most important events in American history that no one knows anything about. Um, but they, they felt very much that they were on, on the outside and, and, and Phyllis was a, an absolute master um, or mistress of the grassroots uh-huh. organizing. Right. Uh, and so she had a, um, through her newsletter and basically through, as we say in Australia, the Bush Telegraph, she, she, she mobilized this army of traditional women to fight what she, you know, and, and it was a lot of rhetoric of, of fear and, um, that, that she, that she employed. But she really did mobilize them to protect the family unit because she sold this idea that feminists were anti-family. And, you know, and I think that that is something, that mud that Phyllis flung at the women's movement has kind of in a way stuck. Yeah. And I think it's something that we still have to justify to ourselves as, uh, as, as women today, whether we're in the workforce or whether we're primarily in the home or whether we're trying to, to struggle, you know, with, with balancing both those things. But, the, you know, it, all of those, um, those things that, that, that Phyllis instilled in, in, in the in her traditional women, uh, I think that, you know, that dialogue and, and dialectic is still alive today. But there was so, it's, it's so interesting you asked that question because there is so much, um, that when you look back at it now, you look at someone like Phyllis, who was a mother of six, who, um, who threw herself at the, um, the anti-ERA movement, the stop ERA movement, and traveled all around America. And so was, even though she wasn't pulling in a wage, she was a working mother. But yet she was, you know, accused of flying around the, the country telling women to stay home. Right. So, it, you know, it's, it's the, it's, she was, you know, this is the, she's the most sort of feminist woman who didn't identify as being a feminist. But I think it's because she, everything about her spoke to order, you know, from the way she presented her, her great um, uh, love of tradition and hierarchy. You know, it was, it, so in, in fact, in her base ideology, she was, um, she was not a feminist. She was not a, you know, she, she was very happy being the only woman in the room, I guess, whereas that's the opposite of the, the whole feminist notion is that, that you bring up other women behind you and beside you. Although looking at the series, that doesn't always happen because of the political system. You know, you, you know, there are always casualties and sometimes it's the woman standing beside you. That's one of the things I found incredibly powerful about, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about these first three episodes um, that aired together. The two very personal injuries that Phyllis does to the women in her life, um, played by Sarah Paulson and Jean Triplehorn, um, I thought that was a really interesting way to bring maybe the, the larger injury she did to the women's movement uh, down to a personal level. Uh, can you talk about you know those those two betrayals that exist in these episodes? Well, it's it's interesting we talk about them as being betrayals. I think when they're when they're when uh, when a real life figure is presented, um, you know, whether it's Gloria Steinem or, or Phyllis Schlafly or Shirley Chisholm, you you have to uh, their lives are so complex, which is and interesting and and contradictory, that that's why you want you that's why you want to tell their stories in the first place. But there's so much life there that you have to select 
certain moments. So in a way, you're always um, you're always driving people through the drama to the real life figure, but you you are taking a perspective on the on the character. And so we look at these things as betrayals, whereas to, to Phyllis, it they they weren't at all. I mean, we all, whether you're Phyllis Schlafly or you know or whoever, you 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 do make missteps. And it doesn't mean that you're the Antichrist. It just right. means that right. that's what happened at the time. And, and I think what, what is interesting about, about Phyllis and reading about her is that a lot of people in her circles were absolutely in awe of her, of how she held it all together, how she was so involved and homeschooled her children, which she talked very proudly about in the phonics method. You know, and that's one thing, you know, I might, I might diverge with, with Phyllis politically, but I, I agree with her that the phonics method is the way to teach children <laughs> to read. You know, that she, that she was, that she was full of these, um, the, these contradictions, but she, but having six children and being so passionate about, um, politics that she didn't have a lot of friends. And I think that that is probably the same for a lot of people who, women in particular, who throw themselves into the into the public sphere or into their work, but also that they between that and their family, they don't have a lot of time for, um, for for uh, you know extraneous social social interactions. Now you can say that that's because she didn't value friendship, or you can say that she was just time poor. And so when you get time poor on a on a on a regular basis, you often neglect the injuries that your mm. that the pursuit of your passion, you know, the detritus, the you know, the flotsam and jetsam socially that, that that goes on, you know, when when you're when you're as focused as Phyllis was. So what was it that she was um she had a disregard for people i I think that she had a profound belief that people had to take care of themselves and that that one of her and so that includes that includes people you know uh, friend friends around you know so called friends around her is that you know if they didn't if they didn't take responsibility for themselves if they blamed their husband or blamed the government or you know, uh, blame the education system that they didn't get into Harvard or, you know, if, if they'd worked harder, then they could have. And I think that that is a, a, a profound belief of Phyllis's is that she did believe in individualism and exceptionalism and she believed that she was exceptional and and that if, if she could do it, anyone could do it. And of course, the, the side of that which can never be looked at by her or, or the people close to her is that she's white and and she is attractive and she her her mother gave her a great education and sacrificed everything to do so but there are not not everyone has a family as supportive as as hers or a husband as supportive as hers or or is, or ends up in a socioeconomic environment you know a skin color as privileged as hers so that it's there's a, perhaps a, um, because of her own experience, there's a sense that um, that she doesn't quite relate to people's experience other than outside her own, you know. And so, therefore, perhaps you could look at those those things that went on in the series as, as betrayals in some way. Well, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because you know there is this incident where Phyllis expresses distaste for racially charged language in her movement. 
and then on a dime almost sort of embraces uh, these women because she needs them to build her coalition, um, which feels like a micro, you know, a microcosm version of the larger embrace of white supremacy or, or, or racist language or whatever that the conservative movement has, uh, has taken on. And I'm just, I'm curious, um, you know, does that have a foundation in the information you found on Phyllis or is this a larger story you're trying to tell about the conservative movement? Well, I think she's she's a like a smarter, more ideological and definitely more polite version than Trump. Mm-hmm. In you know, she's she's highly principled and um, you know, I think that she always thought the the, the women's right to choose what happened to their body, whether they have a family or don't have a family, or, or um, you know, that, that she always thought that that was a, uh, a sin. You know, she was a, a staunch Catholic, but those religious overtones and um, her bringing together of, of so many disparate arms of the, of the, of, of the church was a first. Um, and, and, but she did it very late in the day. She didn't come out of the bat with that language, she didn't see. I think it was probably um, Roe v. Wade that 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 she felt that the ground was being given over by the women's movement. So I think that what was interesting, uh, uh, watching these various interviews that she gave and and the books that she wrote, the the foundational core was always about defence and the need for America to defend itself, and that her biggest fear more than the feminists, was was um, the communists. Yeah. And that she saw the feminists really as, as wanting to, you know, she was much more literal, I think, um, and didactic perhaps than, than the, you know, the feminists were dealing and walking into uncharted territory. So there were a lot of grey areas that they were entering into and they were discovering loopholes and pockets of exclusion, you know, all the time, you know, whereas... Phyllis, all she knew was that she didn't, that the, the communists, you know, and of course this is the, the American version of what actually went on mm. behind the Iron Curtain, mm. but, she, but she saw that the feminists were, were after a sex-neutral, totalitarian society where women were the, were the same as men and that they were going to be drafted into the military, out, you know, and the, the military might of the U.S. Was, had already been, from her perspective, denuded. And so this was going to be a defense nightmare. And so she was, in the way, she took that whole rhetoric about the family needing to be defended. And she saw women as traditional women, um, but women generally, mothers, as being the 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 um, the guarders of society's morality that they were stronger than men, which is you think would be a feminist perspective. Right, right. Thought they were stronger than men, more exceptional than men, and so therefore they had to protect the family, which was the foundation of American society, and that that was always going to be eroded by uh, by the communists, and therefore the feminists were part of that communist communist plan. And so what she did, um, as much as, she, you know, as anything else, is she shifted the language around the anti-ERA movement to becoming, you know, she took the anti out of it and, and headed into the pro-family, pro-life and pro-American and um, sort of rhetoric. She shifted the brand. And what I found absolutely um, chilling, I think, ultimately, was the way that she placed this rhetoric 
this polarizing rhetoric in as a as a centralized um, bedrock uh, part of the the current public Republican Party's brand. And that that's, you know, that was a really, I think it was, um, she, she did that obviously because she felt that, you know, all of those things were, were, um, were what, what the true Republicans needed to stand for. And she succeeded, perhaps even more and more profoundly than, than stopping the ERA. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting that you mention sort of being chilled by this aspect of her, because I know a challenge uh, for a performer, or I should say, you know, an approach for most performers is even if they're playing a villainous character, a character they don't agree with, you need to find a way in to empathy for that character. Um, In terms of challenges you've had as an actor over the course of your career, um, identifying with or empathizing with a character, how much of a challenge does Phyllis present for you? It it was an incredible challenge. Mm Mm-hmm. I think because she was probably, as much as she was front and centre of the anti-ERA movement and gave more interviews than anyone, <laughs> I think, in the, in the history of American politics, um, she was probably quite shy, I think. And if you look back into her childhood, um, you know, being sent to a, um, a Catholic school, but her mother had to work seven days a week. Her father was out of work for quite a number of, of, of years. So she was around a lot of very wealthy girls. She was always on the outside. And I think that she, that she was always on the outside, ironically, of American politics. You know, yet she was so passionate about it. She was um, constantly sort of, as much as she, um, she inspired a whole generation of, of traditional women. She alienated so many people. So I, I think um, I, I sort of felt for for her isolation, actually, um, in, in in a lot of ways. Um, and the, you know, I I could see her incredible passion, but also I could see her Achilles heel is that she. She she sort of always made herself on the outside of a of, of, of a group, um, and so I you know and thinking you know she had two failed bids for Congress behind her, right. and that must they must have sat with her. Someone who was prided herself on on her successes, um, you know the the failure I don't think sat well with Phyllis, and but yet she didn't really talk about it. She just you know from her perspective she just got on with it she didn't blame anybody but you know i think that i you know i sort of um i i felt felt for that and i think you have to find you have to find an empathy um for for the character or an understanding sort of a a slightly uncomfortable understanding it's like an analyst in a way you have to (laughs) sit them down and say so why did you really do that um you don't have to like them Mm -hmm. or or dislike them but I think when, you, when you're dealing with someone as polarizing as Phyllis, I don't think I'd ever played somebody who, you know, you speak to one person and they passion. There's no one who had a kind of a mediocre, lukewarm response to Phyllis. They loved her or hated her. Mm. Um, and so that's a, that's a challenge, I think, you know, to sort of not, um, you know, obviously you had to serve the scripts and the story, and this isn't a story. It's not a biopic about Phyllis Schlafly. It would have been entirely different if it, if it had. I wanted to be part of, of in a way, presenting 
the, 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 the women's movement, what's and all, and the women's movement in, in all its complexities, so with the traditional women included. Because often when we talk about second-wave feminism or the women's movement, we, we, you know, as Phyllis was always very quick to point out, that's a feminist women's movement. We're talking about the traditional women's movement or the mm-hmm. family women's movement, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. And so I, yeah, I did, I did, I, I felt for her. I felt for how outside everything she ultimately was and how I think how much she wanted to be in the room. You're, um, you're an executive producer on this project and that, that can mean different things to different uh, actors to be an executive producer on their own project. What is it, what does it mean for you to be an executive producer on this project? I mean, I spoke to, to Stacey Sher and to, to, to Darby um, and John Langraff right at the get go and Gina and, um, uh, when it was when Darby had this extraordinary sprawling idea, and um, and so I wanted to be a part of it, and I wanted to, I'm always, you know, I'm I'm I've never been someone to option a book for me to to play a role or, you know, the role is all, always secondary uh, to to me. It's the subject matter, it's the directors, and when Ryan and Anna came on board as the initiating directors, I was super excited because I you know I I loved their work and. Uh, and so that was really exciting, and so it's really to be part of it. Um, and as the series unfolds, I think audiences will see that some, you know, there's a lot of um, points of connection. It's sort of what you were talking about before. You know, that there's a lot of commonality between what seems to be in the in the, you know, when it comes out of the gate, a group of very disparate, different women. Mm-hmm. That are coming up against the same sets of roadblocks and challenges, and um, same touchstones and inspirations, and um, and uh, and so that's I, I I wanted to be part of that, and obviously all of the departments are equally important to me, both as an actor and as an executive producer, who's going to shoot the thing, because obviously a relationship with the DP is really important, and how that's going to play out in the television landscape, you know, with, with um, when we started out, it was six episodes and it was eight episodes and it was nine episodes because it was so much story. Right. You know, how many directors is that going to be? What, you know, who, you know, obviously because it's period, you know, we're so lucky to get to, to get Bina, you know, our extraordinary costume designer and and then obviously who's going to, to, to chief the hair and makeup because that's a lot of women <laughs> to get ready in the morning. So, you know, my, my, my interest was um, poetic as well as practical, you know, and then, and then once the cast started to come on board, that's, that's you know, at the end of the day, it's who, it's who you're working with. And, um, and so I was really, really excited by um, the cast that we were able to put together. That's the material. Yeah. I think there. Are, even though we began talking about this before before the the election, um, the election in mm-hmm. capitals, uh, it, it it was a, a, a lot of a lot of these issues that were coming up in our everyday life. You know, over the last four, five, six years, um, I think. All the actresses, I would hazard a guess, felt the same way that you, when you went back to read the specifics again about these women that we're all going to play, it was literally like Groundhog Day. We thought this is the same conversation that we're having. The culture wars that we're talking about now, they were, they were, they were, right, you know, emerging in the 1970s. Um, and so it felt, it felt quite, um, 
confounding and painful, but also really exciting to be doing something that seemed, um, and I think it's really, really relevant to us all well, right I mean, now. The fact that not the, just women, but to men, right? And the fact that the ERA has still not been ratified is just sort of a, a staggering reality that looms over this whole series. Um, you know, but, but yeah, I know it's. But it's, there was a two thousand and one um, poll or survey, and. of Americans in 2001 already thought that the Constitution specified that citizens had had equal rights um, regardless of gender. So, I I mean, I I didn't think it was an issue. And that's the thing about the time at at which the series takes off in, in 1971, is it wasn't a party political issue. It was bipartisan. You know, this was going through because what was so political about equality? You had the Equal Rights, um, you know, you had the Civil Rights Act of 64 and and this was part of human evolution. It was part of American evolution. And, and all of a sudden, in stepped Phyllis and said, actually, this is a problem for our, our, um, our national identity and our sense of, um, and our national defense. And so it was it was the beginning of the closing of the borders. And so you first you shut the picket fence and then you build a wall. And and so it, it I mean I've i it's it's astonishing to me that it's you know, that the notion of equality is um has become politicized. So Richard, before we before we wrap up with our uh, interview with uh, the show's creator Davi Waller, I, w- I wanted to go through some uh, things that were happening at the time of uh, that this this show will be covering, just to have a, a sort of weather eye on it. And I think something that um, you know Davi will talk about in her interview, but um, I think this show does what both Halt and Catch Fire and Mad Men did so perfectly, which is put you in a place, a time, and a place in a way that doesn't at all feel surface and makes everything that's happening around not feel dry or like a dog, but like real a lot, like you feel the the life of the seventies mm-hmm. around uh, the story, the human story that's going on here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, that something that good, um, you know, sort of recent ish histories like this can do is, and it's both hopeful and discouraging in, in, in kind of equal measure, maybe is remind you that like not a ton has changed, you know, in terms of how people spoke about things, what sort of, um, what the kind of feel of a political moment was, you know, obviously the, the particular circumstances are different, but like, you know, all this kind of background stuff with Nixon that was going on is so similar to stuff that's going on now. And, um, I don't know. I just, and I think that in, in capturing the texture of the seventies so well, um, I mean, I wasn't alive then, but I can imagine, um, I think it, it just, it just makes all of the issues of the story pop that much more. Absolutely. And, and not just, not just the stuff with Nixon, but the stuff, what the movement that Phyllis Schlafly herself builds is the, is what creates a lot of what the conservative party is, the Republican party is now. Um, the way in which she, you know, there's this great moment, um, 
in the Gloria episode, I think it is, where she's on uh, Donahue and, you know, she she finishes talking there. She's talking about – she's just talking lies uh, about what the ERA would do. And Phil Donahue's like, ah, oh, did you fact check any of that stuff? And she's like, does it really matter though? You know, and it's it feels so Trumpy to me. Um, and, you know, and something that, you know, we should definitely note is that uh, Phyllis Schlafly, she, she died in 2016, but one of her last – you know, great efforts was to get Donald Trump elected. So this is like, mm-hmm. this was, this is who she is. So, okay. So we are starting the show in 1971. We are, uh, you know, one year out. I mean, this, this is covered in, in some of the first three episodes, right? But we are in the midst of Nixon's reelection where to remind you, he won. <laughs> By the largest electoral landslide in American history. Um, so, like, he just completely demolished George McGovern in yeah. this re-election my, campaign. My dad worked on the McGovern campaign um, from uh, Massachusetts, where he was living, uh, and where I grew up. Uh, and he had a bumper sticker for a couple of years that went after Watergate that said, Don't blame me, I'm from Massachusetts. Um, <laughs> because it was the only state that uh, Nixon didn't win that year. Oh my God. Um, all right. So 72, 73 is, is Watergate and, and Nixon's resignation. 73 is also when Roe v. Wade is decided. Um, 1975 is when the Vietnam War ends and we've got the Ford administration. The Carter administration will end with the election of Ronald Reagan. So that's sort of broad stroke, sort of where we are. A long um, tumble through catastrophe to more catastrophe. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what's interesting is, uh, you know, when, as, as I was sort of doing some, some light research into this decade. A lot of people position this as decade as marked by equally Watergate in the women's movement. Yeah. So um, that, you know, that's, that's what we are looking at here. And this idea that, you know, the, the ERA was th- that the feminists, the women who at least you and I, Richard, I think more identify with in this conversation um, are on the losing side of this battle. And that is something to be aware of as we're looking at this. So we are looking at ultimately what is a failure for this big, you know, valiant effort on, on behalf of the feminists here. And, uh, and so what I think the show does so well is examine both the triumphs, the emotional triumphs, and also what went wrong here. What did we miss? What did we do here? So. Yeah, it was, um, and, and, and I think that you know, no. hopefully, in that way, uh, it it doesn't serve as just a kind of time capsule, you know, closed off period piece. It's 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 galvanizing. Hopefully, you know, it, it's saying this fight is not over, and and there is still more to be done. Um, you know, so I uh, I think that in that way, because it's a little bit, at, at least if you're on, you know, well, I guess on both sides, really open ended. Um, it's, it's, can, the series can be a call to action, uh, in addition to being a sort of, you know, period piece. And I think the way in which each episode is somewhat centered on a different, uh, figure, mm-hmm. um, makes it, um, as you say, it's much more than, uh, like ticking of the boxes or a dry tour through history or anything like that. You know what I mean? Like, so we've seen so many historical biopics or, or historical sort of coverage of, of, of a time just feel like, 
and then this happened and then this happened and you're like, okay, I could just read the Wikipedia page. That's fine. But the, the human stories that are on display here on both sides of this argument, um, is what, is what really elevates this for me. Um, and I'm really excited for everyone else to see the rest of what they have, uh, to show us here. So let us round out this episode with a conversation with series creator, Dobby Weller. I've been asking a lot of women that I know uh, in my life uh, when they think uh, the ERA was finally passed and they keep like giving me dates and I go, aha, trick, depressing question. It never was. <laughs> um, <laughs> but most people think it was. <laughs> and so my, qu- my first question for you is, you know, um, you know, and, and when, and when I continue those conversations, some of them are like, well, isn't, you know, you know, the, on the basis of sex, uh, Supreme Court ruling, doesn't that make the ERA redundant, et cetera, et cetera? And I, I disagree, but I'm curious, you know, there are still efforts to get this passed. What do you feel like passing the ERA at this point or then? What is its impact? What are the stakes? What are we fighting for in this series, Mrs. America? The Equal Rights, I did a lot of deep dive into the Equal Rights Amendment history and it's like a hundred years old. Uh, and I'm fascinated by the fact that it's had a resurgence in politics. You know, the Equal Rights Amendment would eradicate all discrimination in law that's on the books. Uh, what it wouldn't do, it wouldn't completely reverse, you know, 10,000 years of misogyny and sexism mm-hmm. in this country. It that wouldn't remove sexism from the culture, from pop culture. Um, and it wouldn't even apply, I believe, to private companies. It would only apply to public institutions, um, federal institutions. Um, but I do think that's, that would be a good thing, you know, if insurance companies couldn't charge different premiums for women than they do for men. I think that's, that's, that would be amazing or any discriminatory practices like that. But more than that, I think the symbolic impact of having an amendment in the Constitution that says you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex and not having to fashion out of like a clause in the 14th Amendment, you know, lawsuits to end gender discrimination, I think would have the same impact as the First Amendment has. You know, it's not that the First Amendment protects your right to speak in a, in a private company, you know, when you work for a private company like Amazon. But because it's in the Constitution, Americans feel like, you know, my First Amendment rights, I have a right to speak my mind. They just feel empowered to speak their mind because it's enshrined in the Constitution. And I think similarly, if the Equal Rights Amendment were in the Constitution, women would feel empowered that this is our God-given right to uh, be treated the same as men. And I don't think we can discount the symbolic impact of it. And, and what's interesting to me is that this project has been a development uh, for a while that it was written um, before or large parts of it, at least were written before the 2016 election. Uh, and yeah, yet, interesting to you, painful. Oh, to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how fascinating. Very interesting. <laughs> you no. spent five years on this project. <laughs> interesting. How fascinating. No, but I, I'm, I'm more mean that, uh, <laughs> that a lot of the, a lot of the topics that you're covering here feel like things that we've been talking about even more so, you know, since the last election in recent years, especially as we're ramping up to this next election here in the U.S. And so, um, you know, my question for you is, is what got you interested in, in writing this particular project? It's so funny, the producers and I joke that this is a series that keeps catching up to, the zeitgeist keeps catching up to the series <laughs> in our world of politics. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, I, you know, I grew up uh, steeped in American politics, even though uh, I grew up in Canada because my dad's a political scientist and he taught American government at McGill. So I, you know, grew up loving any kind of film or television about politics. um, And I was looking to create a series uh, that was a political drama, especially one that centered on women, because everything I had watched was the women were either the wives of the politicians or they were victims. I really wanted to create a series in which the women had agency and were seeking power for themselves. So when uh, one of our producers uh, pitched me the idea of centering a show on Phyllis Schlafly and her campaign against the Equal Rights Amendment, I just naturally sparked to it. Uh, oh, I think I can create something out of this. It's such a great jumping off point for a series about women in politics. And as you, as you, sort of processed and broke out the series, when did you land on the idea of centering each episode on a different uh, woman in the series? Pretty early on when I started looking at the two worlds and I knew there'd be these two worlds and they would intersect whenever there was a debate between Phyllis and one of the feminist leaders um, or an interaction of some kind. Um, So pretty early on, I, saw that while there was only Phyllis on one side, as she was the singular leader and there was no one else, there were so many feminist leaders. It was quite democratic. And I think, you know, of course, Dinah would be the first to say there was not one leader of the women's movement. It was, it was quite a large group. And I, I loved each and every one of them. They were all so fascinating and colorful and smart and funny and complicated. And I wanted each of them to have their due. And so I thought if I structured the series with sort of each episode rotating to be in the point of view of a different feminist leader, they would each get a chance to shine in their stories. And they each kind of told a different part of the story. It also allowed me to personalize this, you know, when you hear equal rights amendment, like that just sounds like boring words strung together. (laughs) And so I really wanted a way to sort of personalize this very abstract concept. Um, And when you really go home with one of these characters and spend time with them and their point of view and with in their relationships and their family life and their friendships and their insecurities and desires and all that you it allows you to go deeper on the personal level so i would say even when i was writing the pilot i knew that each episode would change perspectives on the feminist side you mentioned that you know this the the contrarian side really just has Phyllis as its leader, um, but then you've got this, of course, these other characters uh, played by Melanie Linsky or this great composite character yeah. played by Sarah Paulson. Narratively, what does she provide for you uh, in this show? One of the reasons I was very drawn to telling the story partly from Phyllis Lassie's point of view is I was really interested in all these homemakers who became so involved in her movement and really went from being full-time homemakers at home to becoming political activists uh, and really becoming the foot soldiers in the Reagan revolution in 1980. And there aren't that many other than Rosemary Thompson, who's brilliantly played by Melanie Linsky. There aren't that many public figures. So I spoke to a couple of women who were Schlafly Eagles and I read a lot of whatever the blog version of 1970s were. (laughs) I read articles in the newspaper, um, and out of that created this composite character of Alice and also the composite character of Pamela, played by Kaylee Carter. So, um, you know, one of one of the many women that Alice is based on is a neighbor of Phyllis Schlafly, who 
actually end up joining now. So, so it has wow. quite a, quite an awakening. Um, so, so they, it's all drawn from real people, but because not, they're all private citizens, you know, we wanted to create a fictional version and didn't want to, to use real names. Right. You mentioned, you know, some of the resources. This is such a meticulously researched uh, show. Every time I sort of go to look up something, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm blown away by how much detail you've captured in this show that that is absolutely historical. Um, for you, you know, as a storyteller, how important is it to balance the history and the narrative? And then what are some of the, what are some of your, you know, the best resources you were able to find for this project? First and foremost, I never forgot that we're making a television show. So <laughs> it has to be entertaining. This isn't a documentary. Right. This is the textbook <laughs> you're reading. It has to be really entertaining. Uh, and that was always our goal. And so and we really not only researched the events that surrounding this epic battle, but also all the pop culture that was going on in the 70s. You know, the writers and I, we were have mostly female writing staff, so it should be no surprise that we ended up with Pinterest-like posters in our hallway with cutouts of pop culture references from every year in 1970. It was amazing. Um, so um, it was, at the same time, to get that lived-in feeling you really need to have it be every detail be very historically accurate. If it feels like your research is if your research is very surface, it starts feeling very generic and very presentational, and it doesn't feel like you're literally just immersed. And so, at every level of production, both in terms of the scripts and also production design and costumes and hair and makeup, we work with some of the most talented people in the business. Um, you know, Bina Dagger on costumes and Mara Repair Sloop doing our production design and Anne Morgan doing our wig. So they all did were steeped in research to really make sure that every single detail you're seeing on the screen is accurate to the period. Um, as far as the resources that I found really helpful, this is going to sound pretty nerdy, but I became like, it also sound like I'm shilling for newspapers.com. But it's an amazing resource for anyone writing a historical drama. You, for only like $80 a year, you can access any local newspaper, like over 1,800 local newspapers from any time period, I think going back to the 19th century. And the writers and I just spent hours and hours, and I remember some days over the course of this development period, reading every article ever written about every woman in our series, every interview they did, every feature about them, every profile, if, you know, Flo and Gloria gave a speech in Ohio. I read that article and read what they said at the speech and how they were received. So that was an incredible resource, um, not only for the detail that you won't find in books written sort of 40 years later about the time period, but also because you can hear how the women are talking about the movement back then, not with hindsight. Uh, and you're hearing how they are referred to and how they are spoken about and what language they use. Uh, so, you know, radical commie liber, which is, you know, a, a favorite phrase among the Schlafly Eagles, you know, that's how they spoke about uh, women's, the women's movement at the time. Uh, so that, that was a great, incredible resource. And then I also want to say that these women on both sides uh, were very prolific and wrote many, many <laughs> memoirs. And sometimes I wish they had written like a few, maybe a little fewer <laughs> memoirs. But um, we read, you know, all of them wrote books and we read all their books. And like Bella Adzug wrote this really hilarious one-year diary of her first year in Congress 
that I hope to make very popular called Ms. Abza Goes to Washington. <laughs> and it's so funny and amusing that her telling off, you know, President Nixon and the Speaker of the House, she's just so salty and fantastic and played to perfection by Margot Marndale. So that was one of my favorite books to read. <laughs> there are moments of watching the show, um, you know, that I that I almost feel like I'm watching what happens for Peggy and Joan once they exit Mad Men and Mad Men ends in 1970s. Joan mentions Betty Friedan at the end of the Mad Men uh, final season. That's right. You know, and I'm like, do they, you know, and we just like walked into this next chapter uh, in the story. Uh, how much, and I know you were, you did great work on the 80s and 90s and Holt and Catchfire as well in between, but like how much, um, you know, can we trace the Mad Men DNA in, in this project? Project. Um, I, I would say a lot. I mean, I really talk a lot about um, the influence that working with Matt on Mad Men and all the writers on Mad Men had on my career and the way I thought about storytelling and particularly stories set in history. I definitely want to, by the end of my career, have hit every decade of the 20th century. <laughs> I feel like like four left to go. Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I learned so much from Matt, every detail. Like I remember being on set for an episode that I was producing and I think there was a secretary was doing a crossword puzzle and Matt happened to come by set uh, to visit. And he's like, why is she doing a crossword puzzle with a pen? She would never do a crossword puzzle with a pen. She would absolutely use a pencil. She doesn't have that kind of confidence. <laughs> so, so we switched it out quickly for a pencil. And- Something we definitely talk about when we think about the women's movement through the lens of 2020 is this idea of intersectionality and the way in which the second wave feminists uh, were successful in that regard and the ways in which they weren't. And I think this... Um, series takes a really fantastic warts and all sort of look at um, what they got right and what they got wrong. Um, how important was that for you for in this first three blocks to have, you know, the Shirley episode um, when you're painting this entire portrait of a movement? It was critical. I mean, one of the very first things I said to the producers when um, I agreed to, to work on this project and bring it to life was I, I didn't want to do a story about the women's movement that excluded the birth of intersectional feminism. And even though when it came to the ERA debate, uh, Phyllis only debated white feminists. And it was, you know, more way to use creative storytelling to really bring women of color into the story. I just felt it was critical. You, you can't tell the story of second wave feminists and leave that out. And I wanted to have Shirley's main episode early on in the series and uh, luckily her run for president, which I thought, which is the period in time that we focused on in episode three happened right around the time the equal rights amendment passed through the Senate, like three months later. So it really worked out nicely. And um, we found thematic ways to link Shirley's story with the story of Phyllis in episode three. I talked to Uzo already about it this week. She told me that... Uh, wasn't she amazing? Yeah, she's incredible. She's incredible. But she's telling me that... Yeah. that um that Ama Asante is only the second uh, woman of color to ever direct her uh, in a film or TV show. And, really? Uh, yeah, and how much that mattered to her. And I'm just wondering, you know, bringing Tanya on and Ama on to direct that episode, um, how much does that matter to you as a, as a creator? I think it is really important to allow people to tell their own stories. They're going to bring something to it that you couldn't possibly even imagine or have that perspective. And I 
wanted to have a diverse writing staff and have uh, not just diverse by gender, by race, by sexual orientation, and by age. And we really did. We had everyone from in their 20s to in their late 60s, early 70s in our writer's room. Um, and similarly with directors, we wanted to have a diverse group of directors. Um, Tanya, early on, you know, we, we all did little reports on the different women in the series for the writer's room in the first week. And, you know, everyone just took someone who they were interested in going, diving deep into their biography and presenting it to the writer's room. Because as I said, there were so many books, we couldn't possibly all read them all. And Tanya really took an interest in Shirley's story. Tanya lives in Brooklyn, and she actually went back to, uh, to look at Shirley's papers when she was back home. And one of the things that I really, um, you know, we already touched on this a little bit. One of the things I really enjoy about this series and enjoyed about Mad Men and enjoyed about Desperate Housewives and enjoyed about Halt and Catch Fire is this, um, idea of watching women in conflict, um, but still being expected as an audience to be on the side of both women. And I know that sounds maybe a little silly because obviously we, we let men be in conflict and be on both sides of the conflict, um, all the time as audiences, but I feel like it's a little rare, uh, to see it with women. I remember, you know, the first time that, that Joan and Peggy have conflict on Mad Men, I sort of gasped and I was like, what? You can't have the two women would not be at odds with each other. Um, but- <laughs> yeah, they've got to be in this together. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering, you Don't know, have enough problems. <laughs> what, you know, what are, what are the, uh, like the narrative fruits of, of putting, you know, women that we care about, uh, in conflict with each other in a story? I think you brought such a great point, which is we, we show men in conflict all the time and it's just called conflict, but anytime women come into conflict and we're like, Oh my God, it's a cat fight. Right. And so I wanted to have more women in conflict on television to actually normalize it because the more, you know, why aren't women allowed to be represented in all the diverse ways men are allowed to be represented? And the more we put it out there, the more normal it will feel. And we'll stop gasping and just see it for what it is, which is, you know, women, there is no monolith in terms of sisterhood or how, or, or ideas about women or what women should do or how they should behave. And to have women, you know, arguing passionately for things that are important to them is exciting to watch. And so I didn't want to shy away from that at all. And, and I remember being kind of disheartened when uh, early on an executive referred to um, one of actually a scene in episode two, where all the women are arguing about what to do about this social athlete problem. And he said, yeah, it just sounds like a bunch of women squabbling. And I was so disheartened to hear that because they're, these were like, these women are brilliant, uh, successful women, two of them are congresswomen and they're arguing about something that really matters and to reduce it to squabbling or to even to hear it as squabbling made me sad. And so my hope is that the more we allow women to be messy, to have conflict, uh, the more normal it'll feel and we will stop thinking of the cat fight and just see them the same way we would view men in conflict. Yeah. And in the interest of that, I think the way in which Phyllis is introduced in the series and treated throughout the series as someone who is, you know, the villain of the piece for sure, but also someone um, that we can have some empathy for, or at least some interest in the emotional place that she's coming from, or the, you know, the fact that her fight is sort of cooked out of the same crucible that fights, uh, you know, that, that 
spurs these other women to fight, you know, which is the, the various indignities and slights and, and, um, you know, even, even worse that she, that she endures. And so, you know, I was, I was talking to Kate, Kate Blanchett about this, about how, how difficult was it for her to access Phyllis, uh, you know, from a place of, of sympathy. That's obviously the actor's challenge. You have to sympathize with whoever you're playing, how challenging it was for her. And she, she laughed. She's like, extremely. Um, so, <laughs> so, so, I feel that. Yeah. It's challenging to write. Yeah. It that's my question. Is it, you know, like, like, you know, as you're crafting, particularly this first episode, which is so, you know, trying to find an emotional way into this woman and, and all these sort of, a crime she committed against her own sex. Like, you know, how do you get there as a writer? Really try to access the, you know, we all have children in us who are in some ways wounded or had whatever experience we had in childhood that we carry with us as adults and behave in certain ways because of our childhood. Um, if I can find the child in them who's yearning for order or peace or whatever it is they yearn for or acceptance, sometimes that allows me to access them in, in a way through empathy. And, and then you really have to work at removing judgment while you're writing them, which is not to say you don't have a point of view about them, but there's that fine line you're constantly walking where you want to write them as authentically as you can um, without bringing myself into it. But it's, de- it's hard. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and be like, I didn't bang my head against the wall. Um, or, and it's particularly hard because I was writing the draft of the pilot um, in November, 2016. Yeah. <laughs> That's particularly difficult. Yeah. yeah. In, in my white outfit that I voted in. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, but, uh, but I, you know, but, but to render her two dimensional doesn't really, um, doesn't allow us to understand her. And if we don't understand her, then we don't understand how backlash movements operate. And if you don't understand that, I think that we're doing a disservice for ourselves. Yeah. And my last question for you, and not to ask, uh, such a nakedly, like, sort of, s- typically female question after we've, we've talked uh, about um, let's not put women in, in one corner, but I personally got emotional uh, watching a lot of this series, both for um, the way in which we haven't, uh, you know, moved on from some of these conversations yet. And the, the, the small moments or big moments of triumph that these women do experience uh, in this series. Was there anything that was particularly, um, emotional or, or personal feeling for you to either write or or see the finished version of? I, I don't think you're putting Baby in a Corner by asking <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite movies. Uh-huh. Um, one, what, what was very emotional for me was reading um, how the feminists wrote about where they thought they'd be in 76. They really believe, you know, we might not get there in 72, but we're definitely going to have a woman president by 76 or 1980 at the latest. And 50% of Congress will be female by 1980. And I got really emotional um, reading that. And so when we shot the scene where Shirley is up on stage at the end, this woman in multicolor dress among a sea of, of white, gray, white male gray suits, um, it, I got very emotional thinking that 45 years later, we still don't have a female president. And then the other time I got very emotional was um, when we were filming on the convention. <laughs> convention floor is making me emotional, but I'm realizing <laughs> I answered the question. But, um, <laughs> um, filming on the convention floor in episode eight, um, 
And if you Google the videos from this convention, I start crying just watching the archival footage of it. I felt that was really, um, you know, Gloria Steinem refers to the convention as the, four, the most important four days that no one ever talks about anymore. And it really seemed to be a moment where women really came together and reached consensus about ways to move forward. And this was the first time they included gay rights in their platform and intersectionalism. This was when women of color as a term was coined back in 77. And the feeling on the floor was almost entirely women arm in arm really made me very emotional and gave me hope that, you know, there, there is sisterhood can be powerful if we, if we marshal it and harness it in the right way. And if we, if we maybe are a little more flexible about, what we accept in other women and that we're all, we all have a different pace for getting there. Absolutely. Those are two places I <laughs> also cry, but not the only places I cried <laughs> while watching this show. Um, so yeah. So thank you. Thank you, Dobby, so much for, for talking with me. Thanks, um, Joanna. So great to talk to I you. appreciate it. <laughs> All right, Richard, that does it for uh, us this week. We'll be back next week with the episode Betty and an interview with Rose Byrne. Um, until then, where can folks find you, Richard Lawson? Um, I'm going to be partying at a gala at the Guggenheim Museum with, uh, you know, uh, Gloria and all my other friends. All my cool Andy's going to be there. Uh, can't wait. No, I'm kidding. I'm going to be home. Like, I've been home. <laughs> Everyone should be home. I'm just home. Uh, and I'm tweeting at Rylaz and writing stuff for VF.com. Uh, where will you be until next week? Uh, I'll be tweeting at Joe Roth. This will be ready at VF.com. But most importantly, I, like Phyllis Schlafly and all of her uh, many women, will be making bread. Oh, uh, because yeah. that is the that is the thing we do uh, now. We make bread from the bread makers to the bread winners. Uh, we bring you this podcast, and we will see you next week. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, "Oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect." Her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.